Hey, 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 welcome to the Pastor Duke podcast. I have a blessing for you today. Officer Andrew, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. This is the guy I got to go to Washington, D.C. on January 6th with. We were already great friends, and uh, he is my guest. Going to share with you today some inside information on January 6th. Uh, at the Capitol, but more than that, uh, this guy loves Jesus. Uh, welcome to the Pastor Duke podcast, Oh, happy Andrew. to be here. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> We've been talking about this for a while. Today's the day. Yeah, well, who knew? We're at <laughs> camp. We just had camp in a stinky chapel. Something's rotting in there. It was... <laughs> I think it's the kids threw up all night. Yeah, kid, two kids just got baptized. Uh, we're having a great time at camp. 90 degrees every day plus, but uh, the Lord is with us. It's been a great time. But, uh, Andrew, uh, I know you'll love the Lord Jesus. You were at a 9-11 incident. You thrilled oh, our yeah. hearts with that. Just introduce yourself for a moment, and then sure. uh, I'll have a couple questions about 9-11, and we'll fast forward to January 6th, and then kind of what we see in the news happening today. Yeah, awesome. Um, just to give you a background, if you can't tell from the accent, it's going to jump out. Yeah. <laughs> Based here in New York, and uh, grew up out in Long Island, and uh, ended up amongst many other things, becoming a, a police officer and a detective in New York City. And uh, through that, a whole nother world opens up. You get to be, I think they call it, the uh, the front row tickets to the best show on earth. And you get to be part up in the front of everything that goes on. And New York City being the hub of many things. And UN, as far as uh, world leaders coming in, to... Highest crime, best areas, best places to eat. Uh, you get to see it all, big gamut. So uh, it, it gives you a good background for people. God put you on the front lines and you got to see the best of the best. And the worst of the worst. There you go. <laughs> uh, just give us a little bit about uh, your uh, role as an investigator. In yeah, I, well, I had done many things i started off uh i'll just hit the, like from the police academy i'll jump right forward to where uh 9-11 comes into play uh did the police academy with a great group of guys which is normally six months and then you do field training where you go out in the street and you go to a field training unit and you, you work with your group with people on patrol and from that once that training starts you pick a command or a p command gets picked for you uh, where you'll go and uh, start as a rookie, and then you're, then you're considered a rookie. And then you go out on, on foot patrol and, and sow your oats as far as learning how to make arrests and fighting crime and all those things. I happened to be in a real crazy area at the time. It was late 80s, early 90s, and a crack epidemic had basically plagued the city, and it was a crazy time. And uh, I worked in Crown Heights and uh, East New York. And then uh, from there, we picked our unit and uh, we did some work that, that stood out a little bit. And the inspector in a, in a unit came up and said, where would you like to go? I said, oh, we'd like to stay here. It's busy. He goes, oh, <laughs> <It's> no. It's busy. <laughs> he goes, oh, no, I got a place that's much better, Bedford-Stuyvesant. <laughs> so he sent us there. And, uh, Another busy place, yeah. huh? I think he was laughing inside going, hey, these guys want to go. I got someone to send them. So um, myself and my partner, who I went through uh, the academy with, and uh, his name's Rodney, Rodney uh, Gillis, actually. And uh, we went together, and we, we worked as a field training unit together, and we went to East New York and uh, 
Crown Heights, and then we went to Bedford Stuyvesant, and we became close friends and partners, brothers, and uh, we worked together, making all sorts of arrests and a lot of uh, a lot of fighting crime going on, and there was plenty of it there, and uh, we actually they let us, which rarely happens, two rookies go together and we partnered up, and they gave us a car and and a unit. And uh, we handled a lot of stuff. It was a very close-knit group of guys. And um, we did a lot of crime fighting. Now, Rodney, he was African-American. Is that yes. correct? Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. It's so, awesome. so amazing to see the racial stuff just kind of fall away. Oh, we had so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> the your lives are on the line 24-7. Uh, just besides that, go ahead oh, and have some fun. Huh? Couldn't, let, couldn't let an incident go by without making fun of each other. But uh, we, we did good. There used to be, I think they made a movie uh, going way back about it. It was a, a black and white partnership of uh, cops. And uh, they made a movie, and they called it Batman and Robin. They called the two <laughs> cops because they did so much work. And then we, here we are, probably 15, 20 years later, uh, in the same command. And uh, we kept arguing uh, Oh, I'm Batman. I don't want to be Robin. And we kept going back and forth. It was pretty funny. And then he got me one day. He goes, well, I'm actually black man. you got to be Robin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was good. We had, we had a lot of fun and uh, we did a lot of work. We used to get criticized sometimes uh, from the higher-ups because we were always on the, very high on the overtime list for the city. We usually uh, top 10 highest overtime earners because we made a lot of arrests. And uh, so you never wanted to be number one. They tell you to sit inside, not go out. <laughs> mm. Hey, uh, I've talked to you for many, many hours for a number of years now, and I'm just always intrigued. Something that I think the main uh, stream uh, civilians don't realize that it seems from talking to you that making the arrest is finding the bad guys and arresting them is kind of the easiest part. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that happens afterwards is kind of disappointing to a law enforcement officer. Do you uh, want to talk about that for a moment? It's it's insane of what goes on. Uh, it starts all in the name of justice once you get to the DA's office, district attorney's office. And you have uh, ADD, ADAs, assistant district attorneys. They're the ones that will process, arrest, uh, take your paperwork, and they'll prosecute it. Um, some are awesome, and they just... They see what goes on, and they put down charges that are supposed to be, and you get down to uh, court, and you get the higher-ups. It's all about politics. They say politics and racism it's kick in all, at that point. all about politics. You would get a guy, uh, I'll give you a for instance, had an Uzi, empty a couple 30-round clips that the cops as were chasing him, lock him up, got the, got the gun, got the spent shells, Got the live rounds, and uh, they don't get charged with it. They don't get charged with it. They get different charges just so they can get a a conviction. I've, I'll give you a, a detailed one that I was in, in, involved in. I had made an arrest on a foot post in Crown Heights. Guy had a gun, shot at a guy, tried to kill him. We grabbed him, got the gun, charged him with attempted murder. At that point, if you got locked up with an illegal gun, handgun, and it was using a commission of crime, mandatory, year in jail. No, no excuses. So fast forward, I'm on one of those lists for too much overtime, so they won't let me go out. So <laughs> the boss goes, 
It was a Sunday morning. He goes, go outside and count the scooters in front of the precinct because there's nothing else for me to do. I couldn't go on patrol. So I'm outside in uniform. I'm just marking off, making sure everything's there. They didn't steal it from the police department, which they do in that area. <laughs> and as I'm standing out front, I hear gunfire going off. I look down the street, and I see this guy in front of It's two blocks down, and he was shooting at a line of people going to church, just letting some bullets go, and he goes back inside and comes out front and sits on a chair in front of a bodega. So... Everything calmed down. He was just sitting there. So I just walked down the street like all the other cops would do, going on a footpost. They walked down the street, and I just kept going. He had no idea I saw him. So I walked down, got even with him across the street, and then bum-rushed him, grabbed him, got him, called for backup, got the gun, got the spent shells, got more live rounds in his magazine. Inside the store was, I think, at 80 bags, big bags of marijuana. So I think there was crack in there, too, as well. So we locked him up. Sergeant was not happy with me. Made an arrest. Going to get overtime again. Sitting out front. Um, this guy happened to be the guy I locked up a year ago. He's still on the street. Didn't get charged with it. So we lock him up. I go to the district attorney's office. Of course, they, they write down, you know, Attempted murder, all these different charges, firing into the crowd, reckless endangerment, possession of a loaded firearm. So uh, comes down to the charges. He's, oh, we got a conviction, I guess. What happened, whatever happened with him? I indicted him, went down to grand jury, indicted him. Um, find out, oh, we charged him. He took a plea. We got a conviction. They were all happy about it. So, well, on what charge? Attempted possession of an imitation pistol. I said, are you happy with yourself? It's, but that's, that's the politics. Yeah. This is heartbreaking for the average citizen who, who just doesn't know this. The mainstream media completely keeps us in the dark of the realities that men and women in blue uh, are up against every day and the corruption within the systems. So it's, it's just kind of a, a kind of a reality check for us. And I hate to, expose my audience to reality but that's part of being a preacher yeah. part of being a christian to lift up our voice like a trumpet and show well, our generation the truth is the truth there's sin so uh i i know you're an elder in in, in the church you, you're a bible teacher bible preacher and god uses you to bring many people to christ and very we rate, relate with one another hugely on that part as well. But just talk a little bit about how you came to faith in christ and what that means to you as a, a law enforcement officer yeah, um, it's it's funny we're here in camp. Uh, as a kid, uh, I was going to a Baptist church, and uh, they had a camp that would be a retreat up in the Adirondacks, really, really remote at that time. And uh, I loved it as a kid. We got to hiking, fishing, sailing, horsemanship, uh, everything you can think of, and uh, you learn about Christ and constantly learning about Christ and uh, grew up in that whole atmosphere, which was great. Um, coming to Christ, accepting him, then as a kid, you're like, oh, they ask again, I'll accept again. And you just keep going in that enthusiasm. Uh, but as life goes on and you see struggles in life and you see the horrors that people can do to each other, and it really sets home and, and it brings a whole new meaning to um what your faith is and, and how you interact with people. And you go from 
seeing hardened thugs and criminals and you just you get cold and hard and um but then you realize christ loves them and they're just really blinded by the enemy and it depends how they're blinded sometimes it's through their own self sometimes it's what they indulge in sometimes it's just pure hate and pure evil that you see that they just embody and they just live that out but they're in bondage they're in bondage so it's a it's a different view uh, when you look at it in retrospect. And some of the hardest things me and my partner used to do, we used to see people begging mm-hmm. on a the street. There'd be lines of people everywhere. And uh, some were professional beggars. And uh, I think one of the newscasters got this one guy. He just, you know, he would limp up, very skinny, hitting his stomach, never said a word. And people just threw cash at him. And... Uh, Someone followed him and they watched him limp around the corner, getting his Mercedes and go home. <laughs> he was doing six hundred dollars every couple hours, and um, but then you have people that are just down and out. So we uh, made a little rule. He said, if "People ask him for food, never give him money. We'd go right to McDonald's, get him a Happy Meals, all the food they need. We come back. You want the food? Amazing how many times people wouldn't take it. Yeah, they just wanted the cash. And then we started, of course, with a little." mischievous uh, we knew at the time they were buying crack for three dollars or five dollars so we would give them two and then they go frantic looking for another dollar so we knew what they were doing so <laughs> so uh you get a different perspective of life sometimes mm-hmm. i am mesmerized <clears throat> when i listen to you tell so many of these stories and they were just things that happened to you every day yeah it's now you also married yeah, uh, and uh, just introduce your wife to us yeah um, I met my wife actually I met my wife through uh, a young lady that was a police officer, and it's um, the sister of my wife. And uh, she introduced us and set us up on a blind date, and she didn't show. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, I was a volunteer fireman as well, and uh, they were having a big picnic, and uh, it was pretty funny. They never let a good incident go to waste. So they had signs up, are you Andrew's date? And everybody would walk by and they would hold up the signs and they all laugh. Oh, man. I didn't know yeah. this specific yeah. part yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. so that was, it. was a lot of laughs. And then she felt real bad. And uh, she was just nervous. And then uh, we actually went on a date. And we just, it's been that way ever since. Kind of a so, follow-up to a blind date that yeah, didn't work, huh? Yeah, it was pretty good. Well, she doesn't exactly look like the New York City under, uh, cop that you would expect, but no. uh, she's a beautiful gal. Yeah, well, at the time, she was uh, doing 9-11 dispatch. She was doing uh, get the police calls in from 911, and then she would call on the radio. So even way back then, she was telling me where to go. <laughs> <laughs> she'd come on the radio at night, and uh, she'd uh, give you know different crimes come up, and she would send us somewhere, and she'd smile. She's still directing your paths. That's huh? it. How about that? <laughs> wow. Man, I, I, I wish we had two hours to just go on and on and on. These <laughs> intrigue me. The depravity of man in your face every day. So let's fast forward to uh, 9-11. It was sure. a life changer for our country. But, I mean, you were there front stage. You yeah. breathed in. You breathed it. You you paid a medical price for it. Uh, yeah. Just uh, we'll take about we'll take about fifteen minutes and yeah, just kind of land on that. Quick fast forward. My uh, partner and I, we were working and uh, we had gone to Steady Midnight's, and uh, back back then uh, it was a, called a nine squad chart. So you would work. There was nine different teams in each precinct. 
throughout the whole city. And uh, you're, you would do like a week of day tours or two weeks of day tours, uh, eight to fours. And then uh, you would do four to twelves for two weeks. And uh, then what would happen every sixth week, you do a week of midnights and uh, really throw your schedule way off. But it was a good program because everybody overlapped with their days off. So if you went through a full six-week cycle, you ended up working with every other team in the city in your command uh, for at least two to three days during that cycle. So you got to know everybody, very close-knit brotherhood, sisterhood of people. And uh, you knew how everybody worked. You knew what they did. And then they uh, argued for steady tours. And uh, the unions asked for it. A lot of detective squads didn't want it. They, they were around a little bit longer, and they knew what it, what it did. So what happened was they went to steady tours. So you never met with two-thirds of the other people you work with. And it divide and conquer. And the mm-hmm. city loved it because then they weren't a, a steady voice together and they can break them up. And if you were on a day tour, you didn't like the midnights because your cars weren't filled with gas and they're dirty and, you know, leftover lunches in it. And the same thing with the 4 to 12. And, you know, so it became a little bit of a dividing point. And, uh, but we were doing steady midnights, me and my partner, because that's all we did. So we always worked the same group. And as other teams came in, we would work with them as well. He did not like midnights, not like staying up all night. Um, but it was, it was fun because it was busy. Fun. <laughs> we, you have a different definition you, for fun. Uh, yeah, I'll give you, for instance, uh, a lot of times we would uh, turn the lights out in the police car, roll the windows down, and go opposite the one way on the streets, just honing in on the gunfire. We'd hear shots, and we'd try and sneak up, and they wouldn't expect the car coming from the wrong direction with no lights. So we'd try to get up on them and chase them and grab them, make arrests, and so we did a lot of that that stuff. So uh, we made good use of the time. Uh, but eventually um, we wanted to decide where we are going to go with our careers. And um, at the time I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to work on homicides and, and work in a detective squad. There was two paths to that. Uh, you could do it by going through a robbery, an anti-crime unit, going to a robbery unit called RIP unit, and um, then you would work your way, get your detective shield, and they would bring you into uh, the detective squad. The other way that they had was going through narcotics and uh, going in a narcotics unit, getting your shield that way, and then coming back and picking where you wanted to go. Um, they changed the career path. I went to an anti-crime unit, which I kind of didn't want to do right off the bat, only because it was steady tours. You got an arrest. You didn't get the overtime. You handed it off to somebody else in your team that was the least productive. And then through that, you would, you know, do your work. They didn't like me there either because the first week I was there, I made seven arrests the first night and passed them off. Everybody in the team had an arrest, and I got the last one of the night, and I ended up, getting more overtime than everybody. So that was fun. Over, so. Overachiever. <laughs> Lay low. Yeah. So they had changed the career path at that point, and then community policing came in, and uh, sounds nice, but they concentrate on graffiti or 
different things that go on that really not affecting people while there's high crime. That's good when there's not high crime. Uh, when you have high crime, you want to address the burning issues. So they made that the career path. I was not going there. So I said, oh, I'll go to narcotics. Knew nothing about how they worked or what they did. And um, find out, they said, you want to be an investigator? You want to be an undercover? I said, well, if I'm going to do it, I'll be an undercover. So they, they would tells me there's a bit more danger with undercover. Yeah, just yeah, a little. Just a, just they were cheering because they didn't get a lot of volunteers for that. So they scooped me right up. My partner wanted to go to emergency services, like a SWAT team. Um, I was always doing a lot of shooting and hunting and trap shooting, skeet shooting and all that. So it wasn't as intriguing as someone who grew up in a city and never even held a firearm to get on the academy. So he, he loved it, went there, and uh, we decided to each go our own career path. And uh, I became an undercover and got a long hair. You would associate with me then. <laughs> a long hair. Looked like a hair. Yeah, I was right there. So, um, and he went to uh, emergency services. During that time, they had the first World Trade Center bombing. And my partner was integral in, in that rescue and there. And he actually did a lot of planning and studying. He became a sergeant, stayed in emergency services. And he had a whole plan for... The Twin Towers, that was his baby. And uh, they had an evacuation in case something like that happened before. They made the towers on the roof with pins. You can lay them down, do helicopter rescues off the roof if people got trapped above the floors where there was damage. And that was, he, he instituted that plan, did a lot of training with it. So fast forward to 9-11. I was finished doing my time as an undercover, which got... We could talk another time about all those episodes. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I finished my time doing that. Uh, I had worked in a unit that was a little bit unique. Um, there was a, we were in a homicide, narcotics homicide task force. We were getting a lot of homicides that would go unsolved because you needed witnesses. And if you got two drug dealers or three druggies going into a building and two come out, you really don't have a witness. That's going to testify. So uh, they dis- they decided let's let's see if we can get an undercover to go in and buy from these murderers and these drug groups, and then we'll lock up everybody in the group for A1 felonies. They all get 25 to life, do a whole big case on it, and somebody will try and save their hide and give up the murder. So the first year we did that, just our unit alone, we solved 41 homicides that were unsolvable just by doing that. So they said, this is a great unit. Let's do it citywide. No other undercovers in the city were doing it. They weren't getting inside. They were just doing peripheral stuff, and it really didn't have the results. So they kind of got rid of the unit, but they said to us, pick a place where you want to go. So uh, we picked the busiest homicide precinct at the time, which was East New York, the 7-5. And I went over there, and I did detective work there. So uh, from there, I was asked to do a case that got very involved, organized crime. So I got sent to a unit in the city investigating that. So I was spending a lot of time at that point prosecuting a case we had taken down. And uh, I was in Manhattan a lot. I actually had a meeting sometime that day with a customs agent and, uh, in, the, in the trade, ten, trade towers, in the trade center. And uh, I was supposed to meet him there sometime during that day. 
But I was at home. I had a take-home call. And uh, I was at home, and I got a phone call, believe it or not, from my son right off the bat, who was in the Marine Corps. And he was working inside of D.C. at the time, doing some intelligence stuff. He called me up and said, towers got a hit. President ordered jets to take down commercial airliners because they're hijacked and they're in the air. It's a terrorist attack. So I knew right off the bat what it was. So I jumped in the car and raced there. The towers, first tower came down as I was in Brooklyn approaching the, the bridge. Got over, the bridge was shut, couldn't get over. Um, of course I could. I uh, picked up a, another customs agent running over the bridge, couldn't get across, <clears throat> couldn't get across with his car. So he jumped in and just that short ride over the bridge, found out we knew the guy I was supposed to meet. And he said, well, he's in the tower. He's there. So uh, his goal was to race in there and get his people out, whatever was going on. And uh, we got over the bridge, and it was just pulling into dust. Ten stories high, five stories high, couldn't tell. So we parked. I grabbed my gear out of the trunk. He had his on already. He started running into the dust. I ran behind him. About how many blocks is this now? Uh, We parked... uh, Two, two and a half blocks away. Okay. About two and a half blocks I'm away. I'm very familiar with the area. I've yeah. been living in New uh, York almost, for 40 years, but our listeners... Yeah, where you're not supposed to park, where they tow your car. That's where I parked, which is everywhere in the city. Uh, close to where the, the mayor's office would have been. Okay, I know right and, where um, And then I started running up the side street. I didn't know which direction he went because you couldn't see. So we're both running in that direction. And um, as I'm getting close to the towers... You hear this. What you don't realize is the sound and the trembling on the ground that this this made coming down. And if you could picture, now the first tower was down, so there was dust and debris everywhere. Picture a huge bicycle pump, and it's pressing down. Everything blew out the sides and the bottom. Didn't know that. Couldn't see it. Just heard the twisting of steel and the crumbling and the ground shaking. And in front of me, I could have sworn at that time that it fell sideways because the air comes shooting from one side, from my left to the right, and right in front of me and just comes shooting across. And I thought it fell right in front of me. So we were disoriented. It had a lot of force. And um, so we, we after we... Got our wits about it. Well, myself, I was alone. I didn't know where he was. And uh, he thought I didn't make it. And I thought he didn't make it for months until we ended up meeting somewhere at one of these uh, little uh, tent city, they called it, where you get your meals and you saw each other. And it was like, wow. You know, we had a lot to talk about. I guess so. Oh, my. So, um, yeah, that was the, the beginning of day one when the second tower came down. Now, I learned uh, later that afternoon when I saw some emergency service trucks, and I spoke to them, and uh, someone I knew, and uh, he told me my partner was in the first hour, and he was actually on the radio when it came down. So he actually was the first person that they knew didn't make it in the collapse because he was on air at the time. And um, so Rodney? Yeah, that was Rodney. And... Throughout that time and, and long after, it was devastating only because 
whatever we did, we did together. We were chasing. We never lost the person we chased, and we chased everybody. And um, I knew what he was going to do, and he knew what I was going to do in every instance. Didn't even have to speak it. And it was devastating to me because I would have did the same thing he did, and I wouldn't have made it. So that was like a blow. And it made you think we're not invincible. So that was, that was a lot to deal with. How old was Rodney when? Uh, you know, I don't even know how old I was at the time. Let me think. <laughs> I guess, uh, so what was that? Late 30s? Yeah, yeah. Been in our late 30s then, uh, mid 30s. And uh, we both the same age. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was uh, I guess, a wake-up of reality of, you know, you're not invincible, you know, when you're young and you're doing stuff. And, and we did it well, so we really didn't think of consequences. We just did what we had to do. And uh, I knew I would have did the exact same thing he did and wouldn't have made it. So that was uh, a blow, uh, I guess, a dose of reality. I, it's uh, sitting across from you <clears throat> at the microphones. Uh, I can still feel the uh, emotion. It's, yeah. uh, it, it'll never go away, will it? No. I mean, for a long time, probably about five years afterwards, I couldn't even... It was hard to mention his name without, you know, emotions coming up. And I never had emotion for many years. It was just, all right, it happened, it happened, and, you know, you, you tough your way through it. But now, uh, you know, the tenderheartedness, the more you embrace that, the more you embrace God and, and uh, see people for what the enemy does to them. Not, and, and they some some willing, but um, you see the effects of it and uh, how it, affects not only the person that's doing something that's not right, but those around them and the consequences of sin everywhere. And um, it really has a, a ripple effect. But if you can keep your mind set on, so does honoring God. That's the yeah. same ripple effect. I think of that verse in Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, mm. and then you go into the face uh, of, of uh, fighting crime in, right. in one of the darkest places and most dangerous places in all the world, I guess you just need Jesus. Uh, uh, I think you've worn out dozens of guardian angels, Andrew. Oh, you're not kidding. <laughs> I'll tell you what, God always has a plan and something in place. I can uh, tell you uh, many, many times... Uh, we go to work and somebody died at your footsteps. You know, you'd be there for the last breath many times. Um, very hard as a New York City police officer, because you wouldn't last long if you started witnessing to everybody as they were passing. And and uh, it, it was a little, it would be tough um, politically. They would be all over you and they'd stop you. It would be a, a big thing. I was so blessed that we were in one of the, highest crime areas and they had a volunteer it was called Bedsty ambulance a volunteer ambulance corps and these guys just like ems they were there at every shooting every play but boy they laid their hands on people they prayed they uh, witnessed to them on their passing moments so we were able to pray and watch this happen and just say i'm glad someone's there that can do it so uh, that God always has a plan, always has someone in place. So that was awesome to watch that. Again, I'm finding myself 
completely mesmerized with uh, the various stories. And Andrew could go on for oh, hours and hours. Right. I've just readjusted our format for uh, today. I wanted to do two more uh, issues, but I'm mm-hmm. just going to invite you to be on an, a separate podcast for sure. the last one. Uh, so I'm going to eliminate 50% of what I had left. So you got <laughs> double amount of time for this topic. Uh, you and I, along with uh, another pastor, Larry, and, and uh, Pastor John uh, Westfall, my mm-hmm. partner, our podcast, uh, my podcast mentor and editor, uh, the four of us went to D.C. I personally believe that the election was stolen, and I wanted to just show up. We drove through the night. Uh, we parked at, was it? Maryland. Maryland, Baltimore yeah. International Airport. Took Amtrak into the city, and I think it was 7 or $8 to park, which was fantastic. Perfect. About 7 or 8 bucks the round trip ticket. We get into New York, or we get into Washington uh, about uh, six in the morning, if I recall, and we walked down. And uh, uh, why did you go that day? And uh, what were you expecting? And just share your experience, because th- God used you in my life that day to see some things I ain't never seen before, <laughs> but I needed to. Yeah, that was it. Was awesome. We got together, and we were going to be there to pray and witness and uh, show our support for truth and and what we observed and. And sore as civilians and, and the whole election and, you know, the obvious that was in front of us. And we wanted to support that as, as well as the Constitution and everything else. But and bear witness to Christ as we were there and pray for people. We had I know you had a list. We had what over a thousand people. Uh, I was representing four thousand three hundred people yeah. names and, and their location. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we had them on signs and we were just praying. So not only are we praying, all these people are praying also. And uh, I was really surprised. I've been to many, many, many uh, gatherings uh, working, seeing them and uh, seeing them from a different perspective. This was the most amount of people I've seen. And I've been to um, March of Life and different things on the square at D.C. in the past. And and they were great as well. And uh, this was the largest group of people without incidences. It was a loving group. You saw everybody was, uh, I'll give you an example. When we were walking, if you remember, it was shoulder to shoulder. We were walking through a lot of people at one point, and it, someone yelled, everybody stop. And someone picked up a cell phone and said, someone dropped the phone. And yeah, they relayed that. that information all the way half a block away. And someone went, I'm missing my phone. And they came back, and it was their phone. Yep. That would have never happened in any other group that I've ever witnessed. That was amazing. So hymn songs and hymns and spiritual songs would break out and a group of 25, 30, 1500 people would be singing. The entire city was surrounded by a line of people marching around the whole, like the walls of Jericho and they were praying. There's a continual line just going a circle around the whole event. And then, uh, it was just, it was an awesome time. And, uh, it was very, I think important to the nation and those people there at that time. Of course, whenever you have a gathering like that, the enemy shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I want to kind of jump in with a couple thoughts there. Uh, the mayor of New York City knew a huge crowd was coming. They had no idea. They downsized the crowd. I believe there was well over a million people yeah. there. Yeah. Definitely. Maybe, and if I had to guess, 1.5. 
but uh, they made sure there were no porta potties. <laughs> and we knew that coming in, yeah. and so we stopped drinking fluids about yeah. midnight yes. and tried to be as empty as possible. The forecast was for the temperature to be about uh, 48 uh, to 52 degrees that day. It never got above 38, and the yep. wind was pretty steady at 20 miles an hour, gust to 30 the whole day. So we're there without drink, uh, with, without water. You couldn't. I had a little stool to sit on, but there wasn't room. There was, wasn't room to sit. It yeah. made it look like a, a can of sardines would have been spacious. <laughs> so we were just on top of one another. And I remember just people being friendly and loving and singing and praying. It was just, it was an amazing thing from all over yeah. the country. Yeah, there was people from everywhere. I had a young girl whose daddy was a pastor friend of mine. She knew I was going. She was a college kid. and She had contacted me her, and asked if our group of four, especially having a law enforcement officer with us, if we would meet with them and then kind of be their bodyguards. Well, there's no way. They shut down right. our phones. They jammed them. No way to communicate. There's no way you can find each other. And when we got back online, she said, hey, thanks for being willing. She goes, but we didn't need bodyguards. We had, yeah, she had one, I had a million bodyguards yeah. today. There was, really did. It was amazing. So, so we were there the whole day and all the speeches. President came. He spoke. And we had made our statement. We'd been up all night, missed a night's sleep, and stood for eight hours uh, on cement, nowhere to sit, nothing to drink. And so it was just time. So we were heading back up Constitution Avenue. And, uh, and I was physically pretty, yeah. pretty wasted. And, uh, you stopped us, our little group, and you started pointing out things that I would have walked right by yeah. pick up there because uh, only- well, the first, first thing I noticed is that, uh, as we, we were leaving early, we were smart enough to say, Hey, let's get out before this whole crowd early. turns and leaves. And I said, you're going to have all these a million people heading to their cars and home, and thankfully we didn't park there, so we took a, a train, which made a good distance between that and the traffic. So we le- started to leave early, but I noticed all the police that were on the corner, there's always security, and you have, you know, usually every corner will have cops and people on foot and groups of cops. Usually in that type of scenario, you'll see little bullpens of uh, barriers up, and that's not to keep people in that's to keep the cops in so they don't get pushed in the crowd and separated and uh all these cops started leaving they all jumped in their cars and as if you remember as we were walking you heard lights and sirens and they were all racing past us and they were going away and i said something must be going on down the street and then as we got closer and closer the something that was going on is all the cops left they went back they went back to the command and I said, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Usually you're there till it's over and you stay even after it's over. And then sanitation comes in with street sweepers and hoses and they wash the streets and sweep them up. And they kind of push the crowds away as they do it and everybody disappears. And so you're saying it wasn't a normal day in Washington? Not at all. Not at all. Not I've never seen that in law enforcement in my entire life where... You have a million people on site and they leave. And that was very uh, concerning. I said, something's going on. And as we got up to the Capitol building, as we we're walking, and there's still a pleasant crowd. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we got up to the Capitol building, I noticed a few things. There was only two offices visible out of the whole place. And they were the ones up on the corner around the side of the Capitol building protecting the parked cars of the congressmen. 
And I said, all right, got a parking detail cops there. And I looked to the, if you remember, as we walked up, yeah, the Capitol building was to our right, and to our left was side streets, and you can see in the distance where the train station was, and and buses were pulling up, and people were getting out of them, and they were lined up, like, laughing and wearing not the same attire we were seeing everywhere You're else. talking about the, the plain, unmarked white buses yes. that all matched, and yeah. they pulled right up to the Very exact... systematic and controlled, and they parked right up in the front in the best spots, and... Uh, they were getting out laughing and looking, and I said, something, they're mustering up for something. You told us that. <laughs> we're like, I said, okay. And I looked, and the way they were lining up and mustering up, I said, give it about 45 minutes. Something's going down here. It's not going to be good because they looked a lot like Antifa looked, and they were changing their clothes with camouflage and, and Trump shirts and, and police patches, and I said, this is not good. You know, something's going to go down. Good thing we're leaving. I remember stepping a little bit closer to you as this was going down. And I'd also like to remind the audience that Trump had called in somewhere like ten to 15,000 National Guards at Nancy Pelosi's at disposal, and she could have had them there. It was her call mm-hmm. to have them there to guard, and the Capitol was completely unguarded. Bar- there barren was, of all enforcement. There were no point. barriers. There was no razor wire. There were no little metal. It was just like on any other day, if you go on a Sunday school picnic, Mm-hmm. There was no security anywhere to be seen. And what was there left? Yeah. That was, yeah, that was the most baffling part of it. Um, and that's by design. There's the, no way, you know, you're going to get people. The non-select committee hasn't brought any of these points up. Yeah, but we were there. Yeah, we were yeah. there. Yeah. So pick up and proceed. So uh, well, at that point, we got into the train station and we boarded the trains and we left and we got off the trains in Maryland and in the cars and then we heard the radio announcements. Yeah. It was about 45 minutes, just about. And uh, all the all the commotion started that we heard on the radio and we were like, good call, we left. There's um, a good uh, friend of mine from uh, Pastor Scott Baldwin's church mm-hmm. uh, who was there uh, and the uh, canisters of literally went over her head. The fireworks and all that business kind of went over her head and blew up in front of her. And she loves the Lord. She's just a just a little gal, five foot three and one hundred and twenty pounds. It just and she said, uh, with all this evil breaking out all around her, she was right in the hub of it. She said she felt the peace of God, which path us all understanding. And she just quietly just started stepping back, stepping back, stepping back. And she was there and witnessed this whole thing. The guy up on the tower screaming, go in, go in. And, and we now we know who that guy is. And he was an insider. And, uh, we got about uh, three to five minutes left mm-hmm. here, uh, after we get we're there, we're beginning to find out things are happening. And of course, for the next twenty four hours, we're getting citizens' uh, footage from right. their cameras are up all over all over Facebook, Twitter, everything. And we've seen the citizens' journalist, and this was an inside job. Give us some thoughts on that, and we'll call it a wrap, and we'll come back for another podcast. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to point out. It's obvious to me. I've been in a lot of situations when there's a riot or a protest. And you have what's called professional antagonizers. And they're trained to get in the cops' faces. They're trained for that camera photograph moment. Um, And they'll yell and scream and spit and curse in cops' faces and go crazy 
trying to get you just to raise your hand. If you raise your hand, they'll collapse in front of you for the photo like you hit them or uh, get somebody that's not trained to react. And um, I saw that as we were leaving. I said, that's what these guys are, but mm-hmm. there's not cops here. They're going to take the average citizen, and if someone comes in your face and they start screaming and yelling and antagonizing and doing, you're going to react. I'm a guy. I'll react. And um, I, I said, this is going to be bad. You know, that's why I said this is not yeah. going to be good because you had all these professional, what appeared to me to be professional antagonizers or people that will get the crowd riled up and to go with them and do things. And I said, this is, you know, this is what it looks like. And there's nothing to counter that. The police had left. So, um, you know, I felt for the crowd, put it that way. Yeah, we could go on for an hour on that event. I think yeah. we'll uh, kind of call it a, a, a podcast now on that point. But we were there, and we know how peaceful and how pleasant and how joyful it was. It was actually a spiritual high was, for me. At, at that point, before when, when we left, we were like, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. It was, you know, so but, many people praying and, and good spirit and patriotic on top of that and just— it, it was a it was a good group of people. I'm so glad I was there. And then walking up Constitution Avenue, you pinpointed that one group of staging uh, Antifa with their walkie talkies. And mm-hmm. you and I didn't need walkie talkies that day, but no. and then they were literally making uh, facial contact with the the group right up at the corner of the Capitol where the yeah. buses were at. And you pointed that out to us. I would have. I'd have walked right by all of that. But uh, sure enough, what you said would happen. Um, about 40 minutes later, did happen, and uh, the citizens' journalism was uh, scrubbed from the mainstream yeah. media, but I saw it all before it was yeah. scrubbed, and it's it all unfolded exactly as you said it would, and that was really interesting to have somebody who, who understands the, the policing side of this and how that the Capitol was undefended, and it was an inside job. And I found out later that those big, heavy doors had to be opened electronically from the inside, Mm. and uh, the Capitol was not breached. And the the, uh, 9-11, what is it, the committee, uh, unselect committee, (laughs) I like to call it. It's just a bunch of political hype. But uh, Satan is the prince of power of the air. He's doing his thing. He is. Uh, Witness it all day long there. Yeah. (laughs) And everywhere. Yeah. So if you look, it's it's there waiting. So, folks, hey, thanks for joining again today uh, for another Pastor Duke podcast. And along the way in serving the Lord, you just get to meet the neatest people and kind of puts us to the front lines of what's happening uh, around the world. And, Man, I'm so glad I got to be there on January 6th, and some people hate me for it, and some people love me for it, but uh, uh, I was representing Jesus, uh, letting my voice be heard. We're salt, we're light, and I'm not ashamed. I, I love my country, and, uh, you know, it's not a political victory for us. Uh, we're looking for we're looking for a Savior, Jesus, to come again, take us out of this uh, wicked world. But while we're here, we're a voice crying out against evil, and we were there, and we're glad we were. Thanks for joining us today. Lord bless and see you next time. Bye-bye for now.